I'm here today with Willie Dwayne Francois III, author of a new book from Brazos Press titled Silencing White Noise, Six Practices to Overcome Our Inaction on Race. Willie is senior pastor of Mount Zion Baptist Church in Pleasantville, New Jersey, and president of the Black Church Center for Justice and Equality. He serves as assistant professor of liberation theology at New York Theological Seminary and directs a master's degree program at Sing Sing Correctional Facility. He created the Public Love Organizing and Training Project and has served in various organizations engaging racial justice issues, including the Atlantic City Chapter of Black Lives Matter, the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference, and the New Jersey Department of State's MLK Junior Commission. Will is an active speaker and has written for Huff Post, Sojourners, The Hill, Christian Century, and Religious Dispatches. He is a Pi Beta Kappa graduate of Morehouse College with a Bachelor of Arts in History and Religion, named the ranking scholar of both departments. He received a Master's of Divinity from Harvard University's Divinity School, where he received the Hopkins Shareholders Award, the school's highest academic recognition, and served as the Class of 2012 commencement speaker. Uh, Willie also has a Doctor of Ministry degree from Emory University's Candler School of Theology, and you can learn more at mountzionclc.org. So, uh, Willie, uh, it's so uh, much of a pleasure to get to meet you and uh, have this conversation. Uh, the honor is mine. It's, it's really a grace uh, to, to be able to talk about this project and uh, to be a part of this, this, this great work uh, that you do is, is really exciting. So thank you for having me. Well, it's, it's, it's wonderful. And uh, congratulations on all you've accomplished. Um, it's just quite an impressive uh, background. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Even though you're not that old. <laughs> right, 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 right. Although some days I feel like I am. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what would you like to tell people beyond what I described? Sure. Uh, so I grew up in Galveston, Texas, uh, to a single mother with a, with a young sister, I really nurtured uh, in a, a, a mid-sized uh, Baptist Church uh, there, uh, so so a lot of my formation uh, as as a as a as a youth, uh, my formation as as a person who thinks about what it means to live in community with folk uh, happened there uh, in Galveston, uh, thanks to the uh, the nurturing uh, and compassionate leadership of of my grandparents, uh, my my maternal uh, grandparents. Uh, my grandfather is is still living. My grandmother. Uh, is now in sainted memory. She's she's with the ancestors, uh, but but really that that formative time uh, in Galveston, uh, Texas. Uh, sometimes I'm able to to see uh, the the trails of how I got here uh, from there, and it just it just I'm always uh, floored uh, by how much uh, that that little island uh, in Texas uh, has 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 shaped uh, my my life. Uh, I'm I'm a father of of one son. He's a two year old. Uh, and um, I always think this is interesting. Uh, so I'm from Galveston, Texas, the, the home of Juneteenth, uh, and my, my son's birthday uh, is June 18th, and if oh he had God. only waited nine minutes, oh, wow. nine minutes, he would have been a Juneteenth baby. <laughs> wow, that's funny. <laughs> so, um, you know, I mentioned before we got started that, you know, you're one of the few people from New Jersey, as I am, that I get to talk to, you know, in some of these um, interviews. How did you make it from Galveston, Texas to uh, Pleasantville, New Jersey? Sure. So immediately after I graduated from from seminary, I moved uh, sort of home. I moved to Houston, Texas for 
for two years where I served at uh, what I what I consider my home church as the, a minister of Christian education and discipleship uh, there, Wheeler Avenue Baptist Church. And from there, I, I, I moved to New York City, uh, to Harlem, where I was an associate pastor for another two years at First Corinthian Baptist Church. And while I was at First Corinthian, um, I, I applied. I'm, I'm in the Baptist tradition, uh, which means that you you candidate uh, for churches. There's there's no uh, episcopate. There's no there's no bishop that assigns you to a place. So I applied uh, to the Mount Zion Baptist Church, and that is how I have been in in New Jersey, the southern part of New Jersey, which is which is different than than how we often think about New Jersey externally. Uh, it is it it is southern in a lot of ways uh, but I but yeah, that that is how I made it to the southern part of New Jersey and I've been here for six and a half years six and a half years well welcome to the Jersey Shore uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's been hot this year <laughs> it really has it really has <laughs> so let's get to your book as I mentioned the title is silencing white noise six practices to overcome our inaction on race how did the book come about well so, so, so much uh, was happening in, in, in 2020, uh, a, a pandemic that had severe uh, racial implications, uh, class uh, implications, um, the, the deaths of George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, sort of, um, I mean, it, 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 it evoked in me a, a type of hopelessness uh, that, that I had not wrestled with uh, in my years of doing community organizing, of doing social justice work. There was that, that compounding uh, reality of, of, of this, this, this pandemic, which was dizzying and, and dislocating uh, and distancing in a lot of ways. Uh, and then these, these, very, these very real deaths that captured the imagination uh, of the moral imagination of of so many in our nation, but particularly watching uh, watching Floyd uh, watching Floyd die uh, in in that way. It, it 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 maybe it was the fatigue of of the moment of of not being able not you know the fatigue of just vocational life up to that point, uh, whatever the pandemic was doing to me, and then being confronted again. Uh, with with the legacy of this country, uh, structural and uh, interpersonal legacy of racism uh, in this in this country, uh, told me I I, I want to say something. I, I felt like I had something to say. I felt compelled uh, to 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 address uh, not those moments, but to address how those moments were really uh, these dynamic symptoms of of, of part of America's sicknesses. Uh, and 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 I I just started writing. I just started writing, mm -hmm. and I, I paused and I said, "Well, maybe I should actually pitch this to a publisher." <laughs> uh, and and through that process of of, of refining the ideas of of organizing uh, this this book, it actually became a, a therapeutic resource for me that that really breathed some new life. Uh, into my own uh, anti-racism, uh, you know, e education work, my my own uh, community organizing, and my own and my own spirituality. Uh, it it forced me uh, to think about a a spirituality for anti-racism. I, I don't use those terms in the book. Uh, in in the book, I talk about a an abolitionist spirituality. Uh, but but really, what I was trying to to work out is like, what are the what are some spiritual principles that animate and live 
within, live underneath, uh, but also grow out of anti-racism work. Uh, so, so trying to, to articulate a spirituality of anti-racism, a spirituality of justice, where I land talking about it as an abolitionist spirituality, uh, is, 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 has been therapeutic and has, has, has helped to reset me in a lot of ways. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, that's very cool. I mean, it's a big deal to write a book, right? I mean, it takes a, a lot of effort. So, you know, I'm glad you persevered to make that happen. It, 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 it took, a, as, as anyone would imagine, it took a significant amount of discipline. Uh, at, at the same time, I was starting a new job, uh, mm-hmm. which was a second job. I was still a full-time pastor, but now a full-time academic. And so balancing the teaching load mm-hmm. and all the other busy work that they give professors. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and then the demands of the pastorate uh, were, were particularly unique. Uh, during 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 the pandemic, yeah, trying to be yeah. creative, trying to find ways to continue to connect, uh, it, it it took an incredible amount of discipline, uh, and it might not have been healthy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel for anybody who was a pastor during the pandemic. I mean, that just was—it's already a difficult job, right? I mean, sure. and then you throw on top of you know that the ridiculous amount of change that was required and stress, and you know so. Um, thank you for persevering through that as well. Yeah. <laughs> so who would you say the book is most attended for? The book, I, in my opinion, um, I would say a primary, uh, who I had in mind, like a, a profile I had in mind was a moderate to progressive white person of faith, mm-hmm. um, primarily Christian, but, 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 but person of faith. Uh, I'm still of the opinion uh, that it is really up to white folks uh, to to yeah. abolish racism. I agree with you. <laughs> it's it's the system they they created. It's the system that that ravishes uh, non white non white bodies and and condemns non white lives. Uh, and so often the the leaders in racial justice movements are those who are most impacted. Uh, and and I understand why that is uh, because it's a type of self preservation work that that we're doing. Uh, but the real onus uh, for ending ending uh, structural racism, interpersonal racism is, is actually on, on white folks. So th- that is the ideal, uh, that, that's the profile that, that I had in, in, in mind, uh, because I think there is um, some, some levels of evolution that, that I have encountered moderate to, to progressive white folk willing to engage. Uh, but like, like I say in, in the book, uh, it is really a, 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 a piece for anyone. Uh, because although I am black um, and although I'm committed to to racial justice uh, fiercely, uh, I know for sure that that whiteness uh, manifests in me. Uh, there are times that I perpetuate anti-black thoughts. Uh, there are times that microaggressions uh, bubble up in me. Uh, and, and so I think all of us have to attend to the ways that that white supremacy as an idea, whiteness as an ideology, not an identity, not skin color, not ancestry, particularly, but whiteness as an ideology, how that shapes us, how that forms us. That's why I talk about it as I, I, I frame it, as you can see in the title, as white noise. Uh, it's 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 the the sound that's all around us that that lulls us to sleep, that that makes us uh, unable. Uh, to engage the work of, of racial justice. And none of us are immune 
uh, to how whiteness works on on the body, how whiteness works on the mind. But I always think it's important to say that, that no, I'm not talking about an identity. Uh, I'm not even talking about individual people, uh, but I am talking about a force, uh, a power uh, that that works beneath the consciousness uh, that has serious implications for who's hired, for how we do healthcare, for who we jail, for how we allow people to love. Uh, So all of us are are really implicated, and I hope there is a message uh, and and instruction for all of us for how we can finally speak with clarity, conviction, and courage, uh, and also act uh, in ways that that, that move toward repairing this harm. And I think, you know, most white people are oblivious, you know, to the white noise. I mean, it's, it's, it's normal, you know, quote unquote, because that's what has been what we've experienced all of our lives, you know, for most of us. And so, you know, highlighting that I think is important. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned to you before, I love the subtitle of your book, you know, six practices to overcome our inaction on race. Well, you know, uh, that makes appear to me to be very practical you know sure. is that what you were shooting for with the book i was really yeah right so there, there was a phase in this project where i wasn't as pragmatic as i as i should be uh and i hope i i reach some levels of pra- of pragmatism of, of practicality that 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 will be helpful i, I think i do uh, but but as someone who is who lives in academic bubbles, uh, it's often hard uh, to to really nail how does this work on the ground. So it took some some serious intentionality. So although it wasn't the original design in my mind, uh, you know, working with editors, thinking about like, man, what what would my grandfather do with this with Mm. this piece? What would what would uh, Miss Mary Briggs, a member, a 97 year old member of our congregation. What, what would she do with this text? And that, that compelled me to start thinking about where are the practices? How are we, you know, I, I do anti-racism training and I talk about practices in, in those trainings. Uh, I, 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 you know, I under, uh, understood practices when I went through my own uh, anti-racism education moments when I was being formed. And, and I was like, I want to do a book that actually offers people uh, resources, practices, behaviors, uh, exercises in some cases that allow us to interrogate ourselves, uh, allow us to stand in the moral mirror uh, and and really examine ourselves and not be afraid of being racially naked uh, to, to figure out the, the, you know, the ways that racism is is working on us and also the ways that we can individually and collectively, interpersonally and institutionally uh, start to disrupt start to that process of abolition so that we actually can get to a place of repair. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So um, I'd like to read a couple of endorsements for the book. This one comes from Publishers Weekly, which gave the book a starred review, which is a big deal. Uh, they say Francois packs this stunning manifesto full of history and theory, providing reliably sharp analysis, whether dissecting the Bible or Foucault. This is a superior volume on Christian anti-racism. So that's quite a powerful statement. It was um, <laughs> Which is really cool, you know, to hear them say things like that. Um, <clears throat> there have been several books written on anti-racism, clearly. Um, how would you say that this book's unique? 
what this book part of the uniqueness of this book is that it it takes seriously and i hope throughout the way race intersects with other identities uh one, one of the thing I, I you know i talk about in the book having a syncopated identity it's that moment where i'm able to acknowledge how my race intersects with my class and my class intersects with my citizenship status and my citizenship status intersects with my sexuality. Understanding that, that none of us can live single issue. None of us can do single issue work because none of us live single issue lives. That, that's that Audrey <laughs> Lord, Lord piece there. So, so really taking seriously the intersectionality of our identities that allows us to name where we are privileged but also named where we oppress. And, and, you know, I can name that as a man, I'm privileged uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a person, as a wage earner uh, in, in this country. Uh, I'm, you know, I have middle-class privilege. Uh, and none of those things are canceled out because of the de-privilege that, that is associated uh, with, my, with my race, right? So being able to hold those things in tension is, is, is a piece I'm interested in pushing forward. The, the fact that it's, it's connected to practices, and many of those practices are grounded in a type of spirituality, uh, whether it's uh, memory, what, what, how we use memory, how we attend uh, to history, uh, how we listen to ourselves and to others, uh, whether we're thinking uh, about uh, the power of grieving. Uh, in, in one of those chapters, I talk about moving from uh, white guilt to white grief, like grief as something uh, that we can heal from, but also honoring something that must die within us without us dying, right? So so practices that, that are rooted in a spirituality, which uh, is, of course, informed by my own Christian identity, uh, but I also hope at many points is, is large enough uh, for, for, for interfaith uh, in, in engagement. I also think that, uh, a place where I try to, to, to move differently uh, in, in this book is by actually uh, naming uh, and, and framing this as a crisis for democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this 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 is about how we live together and and time is really running out uh, so, so that, that, that there's a sense of urgency that that I hope I am I am attending to uh, in, in this in this book as well. Good, good. So um, here's another uh, blurb from Aubrey M. Hendricks, Jr. He says a brilliant contribution by a brilliant man of biblical faith to the struggle to make America a truly just and humane society. So we've talked about how things have changed, you know, over the last couple of years, dramatic changes on multiple fronts. How would you say the struggle is going now? Is it better? Is it worse? Well, in the, in the aftermath of January 6th, which was both religiously and racially motivated and, and to a great degree, at least, that's that's my read on it. So you have religion and race that play significantly in what could have been a profound dismantling of of this democratic experiment. Uh, you know, literally, this experiment was minutes <laughs> away from being compromised in, in ways that that I don't remember uh, reading about, and definitely not not in in, in my lifetime. Uh, white Christian nationalism is in many ways a badge of honor 
in, in this country for so many communities, including sitting members of, of Congress. Yeah. You know, I think that we are at a, a crisis moment as any we've ever been in in this country as it relates uh, to, to race. And I think that the way racial resentment, uh, particularly of, of working class white folk, is being stoked and, and the way that the division, the wedge between uh, w- working class white folk and, 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 and working class black folk and, and, and middle class black folk uh, and, and other non-white communities as, as well uh, is, is, is more alarming now. I've, I've seen a sort of uptick in this. Uh, since the candidacy, the first candidacy of, of Barack Hussein Obama, and it it's, it it seems, uh, you know, when you think that you've hit a its climax, uh, <laughs> that there seems to be another octave to it. Uh, to use the sound, to use the sound metaphor uh, again that I try to use throughout the book. Uh, so, so I I think we are in a moment of particular crisis that requires us to think about the institutions and how white supremacy actually no longer needs white people to live because of the way that it is baked into our laws and baked into our economic arrangements and baked into our healthcare system. Uh, and then at the same time, being able to hold the fact that there still are individuals uh, that have the power to perpetuate this on a mass level and also individuals who have the power to take life or, or to deny housing or employment, an array of, of, of things. I think that this moment uh, is an alarming moment. Uh, and, and that is what makes me feel as if time is really running out. And we have to seize uh, this opportunity as a type of vocation, to see anti-racism uh, as a type of vocation, uh, as a type of, of, of spirituality, as I said earlier, uh, that, that, that moves us into action. Uh, one, one thing I, I didn't want to do with the book is is have another book to, that helps us talk about race. Uh, and we don't know how to talk about race. Mm-hmm. We, we don't. This is true. Oh, yeah. Uh, but 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 I wanted politics, that. religion and race. Right. I mean, right. you know, when when I was growing up in corporate America, it's like you don't talk about those things. You know, well, sex was the other one, too. You sex know? is the other. One. Exactly. You know? So it's like, you're not supposed to talk about those kinds of things. And I think it's a society we've gotten poor. Sure. Sure. And, and, you know, as 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 a pastor of of historically disinherited peoples, uh, I find it hard not to talk about those, not to talk about those things. Uh, I, I consider what I do less about politics uh, and more about justice. Right. And, and in the book, I talk about uh, justice is where spirituality and and the political rendezvous, the spiritual and the political rendezvous. It's 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 what it's 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 what hold the, holds those things uh, together. Uh, justice is what holds those things uh, together. So yeah, the taboos are real. Uh, and for some reason, I decide to step on those landmines for a little <laughs> <laughs> Well, good for you for getting out there to, to, to do it. Um, so I want to ask you about all six of the practices that you described in the book, but is there any particular one that you'd like to share with people? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that's, that's a great question. You know, I think my maybe I'll talk about the one that gives me the most challenge. Um, and the one that gives me the, the most challenge is, is the idea of telling on yourself, right? Uh, harvesting the discomfort of telling on yourself uh, is, 
is incredibly difficult uh, because so often I want to tell myself I'm, I'm beyond it. I want to tell myself that I've I've graduated from anti-oppression schools, that I've I've reached the status of of what it means to be an ally. Uh, And then I'm reminded again that, you know, in in the book, I tell a story about one. I was at a a, at a conference uh, in, in the South. Uh, talking about mass incarceration, and uh, a white brother stands up and says, "Thank you, Reverend Francois, but you're you're speaking to the choir. What we need to go talk to those other white people, those white folk." And in that moment, uh, what comes to mind is, well, yeah, he he says we're preaching to the choir. Well, well, even the choir needs rehearsal, right? <laughs> and, and and so so you know this idea that that we all need to be in the process of rehearsing, that we're all living in in many ways in this middle passage, getting, getting closer, but, but, but not yet. Right. That's the way we talk about the, the kingdom of God in, in the Christian uh, tradition is that it's, it's here, but not yet. It is, it is, it is, it is inaugurating, but, but still evolving. And I think that's how we have to see ourselves in what I call in the book, reparative intercessors. That's how I talk about uh, people who do this work that, that we, we speak up and act up uh, on behalf of other people, we use our power and our privilege, identifying that uh, as a way of 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 pushing uh, opportunities, agendas, and 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 practices that actually benefit the 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 other. So so when I think about harvesting the discomfort of of telling uh, on on myself, uh, that that's the practice that I think is most important because it it forces me to sit with the ugliness that still lives in me. It forces me to constantly be in the process of interrogating how um, my, my, my sexism has the capacity to, to complicate my anti-racism. Uh, how my, my, sometimes my affinity for capitalism and, 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 and the ways that that, that, that sees workers and, and other laborers as disposable. Uh, you know, how, do I, how do I guard against a sense of being exploitative as, as a pastor with hundreds of people who, who, you know, no matter what I say, want to serve me, want to, want to make sure I'm okay. So attending to telling on myself, uh, staring in the mirror, uh, allowing myself to, to see where I'm still undone and where I need to continue to, to evolve, uh, I think is a, is a message that I hope uh, all of us can commit to and, and, and particularly uh, what white men, particularly middle class and higher white men will, will give themselves over to, that we never let ourselves off the hook just because we've demonstrated some improvement, just because we've come to some awarenesses. Well, that's really helpful. And it's like, you know, we're all human. So by definition, we're not perfect, right? And sure, there's sure, no room sure. to improve um, on all of us, or for all of us, on all, all fronts. So. Um, yeah, and, and you know, I think that's and, and I think that, that that the way I try to frame it is to is to is to honor the the, the fragility of all of our humanity, not just whiteness, but the, the, the fragility of humanity and to to offer a, a type of grace as we you know to offer a type of grace that we don't take for granted, but a type of grace that that honors the fact that we are all evolving. None of us are immune from the realities that 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 white noise can can grip us Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so um 
for those of us, you know, white Americans, I mean, do you have any suggestions of particular organizations or efforts that we should consider joining? Sure. Well, maybe maybe I have a, a more type of, of, of organization uh, than, than actual organ- organizations because there, there are so many uh, that that do the work of, of of racial justice and I think do it well. But we I mean, so one that requires an earnestness of doing the research. All right. Uh, and, and there's so many local organizations that we can volunteer in, that we can uh, contribute to that, that we can experience their work, uh, experience their, their formative work, uh, whether that's those are classes or workshops or, or, or the like. Uh, I think that, that, that one, we, we have a responsibility to, to do the research. We, we have a responsibility to figure out what's available to me that will allow me to, to practice anti, anti-racism in meaningful ways. The other piece is looking for organizations uh, that actually center black leadership, mm-hmm. uh, organizations that actually center black leadership. And, and I would say definitely those that center the voices of black women and, and black queer people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just really, really important. Uh, organizations that actually have a robust vision around what structural change looks like. Uh, I think that one, like as I say in the book, we, we need to hold together what it means to disrupt individual racism and institutional racism. But I think there is often more attention given to the individualized racism that actually lets America off the hook in ways that we shouldn't let uh, what we call the greatest nation in the world uh, be off the hook. Uh, you know, it's really hard to be great. Uh, if we haven't figured out how to be morally good, right, uh, as, as, as a nation. So organizations that are really committed to what structural change looks like. So often, you know, in the book, I talk about structural racism and structural inequality and structural disparities. Um, I want to see organizations that are investing in structural love, uh, mm-hmm. you know. What, what does it mean to have a politics of love? What, what does it mean uh, for for for, for, for for not to legislate morality, because obviously that's not it, but in a way that we start to, the, the, the same way that we have as a nation been consciously or unconsciously uh, committed to uh, structural harming of communities, how do we now think about what structural repair uh, looks like? So, so organizations that are actively working on structural repair in some way, that are working on structural change uh, in some way, uh, or organizations uh, I think that are actively on the ground. Uh, you know, there's so many think tanks that sort of live disconnected uh, from from real people's yeah. lives. Uh, I think there's something to be said uh, about a a community of a, a community of of, of people uh, that can depend on organizations to do life uh, with 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 them. Uh, yeah, so so those are some of the touchstones of, of orgs that, that I would be looking at. Does it meet these criteria? Mm. Of sorts? Cool, cool. That's helpful. So um, I know you're in the middle of launching a new book, but um, are there any future projects, you know, that you can talk about at this point? Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to, 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 to consider pitching a, a project uh, that, that, is, that has much more interface uh, with with um, the carceral system uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and how race and class are, are tied up in that and how that too 
is damning our democracy. You you mentioned at the at the top of of, of our time together uh, my work at New York Theological Seminary. Uh, where I am the director of a master's degree program that is at Sing Sing Prison, yeah, uh, and uh. and in our, in se- in September we will also be at Bedford Hills Prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we will be at a women's facility for the very first time. Mm-hmm. The program is forty years old. Uh, the Sing Sing program is forty years old, and it's the only master's degree program offered uh, in a New York State prison. And so be like moving in and out of a maximum security prison and and learning from uh, incarcerated men over these these uh, last two years uh, is really shaping a project for me. And, and thinking about thinking about the way they're patrolled on the inside is not terribly different from the way we're patrolled uh, by 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 policing. On, on, on this side of, of the bar. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking towards this, this, this project of, of, of doing some, some, some practical work too on how we can, how we can identify, how we can name, uh, but also how we can start to disrupt uh, this, this, this carceral machine uh, that, is, that is devouring uh, wages, that is uh, uh, damning opportunities for, for children. Uh, emptying homes of of, of loving parents uh, and, and potentially uh, loving parents. So so I'm really excited about about uh, the possibilities from that. Mm, good, good. Well, I hope you also take the same practical approach of like not just describing the issue, but yeah. what we do about it. Yeah, yeah, it's I, I, a yeah. Difficult problem. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hope yeah. I don't forget that in the middle of the ride. <laughs> <laughs> you know, diet. Uh, you know, diagnosing the problem is much easier than yeah. thinking through how do we start to solve. Yeah, it. So, uh, I totally agree. I, I don't want to get trapped in the paralysis of analysis. Uh, you know, I I, I hope uh, that that I have some some prognoses that that I can offer for, for what too uh, is a human rights crisis. Good, good. So again, the new book is titled "Silencing White Noise: Six Practices to Overcome Our Inaction on Race." And you can learn more about <clears throat> Willie and all of his work at mountainscienceclc.org. Uh, Willie, thanks so much for joining us. Really great to get to know you, and I really appreciate um, you know what you what you're doing. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited uh, about this conversation being released into the world, and 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 the book coming into into world and seeing seeing how we use it uh to to make our to make our nation better sounds good thank you very much thank you